Amen. A lot to sing about this morning. I love singing. God, I had to remind myself first service. I'm like, Craig, you got to pace yourself, man. You got two more services, man. Just uh, man, great to, to lift our voices and praise confidence who our Savior is and what he's done. Amen. That was a little weak. Amen. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, it's good, too, to have uh, some more college students back. It's, um, saw a couple of them around here today. Uh, so I link in, and uh, a couple of them live with me, so I've seen them, obviously. Um, but uh, good to have them, have them back. And uh, and as I say that, um, God's man, God's blessed us with um, several college students here um, of, uh, from Cornerstone and, and area colleges here over this this fall too. So uh, they're ours too. So I, I want to keep encouraging you. They're gone here for a few weeks, and uh, we miss them. But I encourage you, if you as you see these college students coming too. I remember when I was in school, I. I I, I hung out with my buddies all week, right? So um, when I came to church, one of the things I was looking for wasn't more uh, that. I mean, I wanted that, but I, I loved it when, like, you know, older people uh, showed an interest in me, too, and, and that's cool. So uh, show them an interest, and, and uh, it's, it's cool that they're here. And uh, embrace those college students that are coming and make them feel at home. Uh, it's good to have moms and dads away from, uh, away from home. So turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. And uh, while you're turning there, if, you, if you're just joining us today, uh, we, we've been tracking through Ruth each of the Sundays of Advent. So Ruth uh, 1, 2, and uh, for one, uh, Advent 1 and 2, and, and Ruth 1, right? Uh, we, we see how the story begins uh, talking about the book of Ruth, actually. And one of the primary purposes is this, it's this bridge between the time of the judges and the monarchy in Israel. And uh, one of the primary purposes, we'll unpack this a little bit more next week. Um, I, I believe one of the primary purposes of the book, too, is, is it's an apologetic of the, the Davidic throne and telling us where the Davidic throne comes from and why it's okay that there's this Moabitess in, in there and, and justifying her presence as a noble woman in, in the line of, of David and ultimately in the line of Christ, right? And, uh, but chapter 1, it doesn't start out that great. It's, it's tragic. And uh, the, the whole story is born in tragedy and brokenness and death. And uh, widows, these, these, these women left without their husbands, their protectors, their providers, which in that culture was a big deal. And, uh, and we see the, the, the heartache as the chapter unfolds, and, and, uh, but Ruth and this commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi, I, I will go with you, and I will, uh, I will find shelter. Your God will be my God. And, um, and she, she comes to Bethlehem with, with Naomi. And as chapter 1 comes to a close, in spite of the darkness, there's this little glimmer of hope, right? Now the barley harvest was just coming, um, and, and, and it was that time in Bethlehem, and you're like, oh, maybe the provision of food um, is, is on the horizon here, and as you go into chapter 2, you see that certainly unfold, and, and Ruth goes out into this field to scavenge, to, to provide a provision in the law for poor people, to scavenge in the fields and pick up the scraps that were left, and as chapter 2 unfolds, you see this journey that Ruth is on as the Moabitess, the outsider, but through the kindness and grace of Boaz, the outsider becomes an insider. And, um, and as the chapter unfolds, she, she's then seated at the table with the workers and, and invited to drink of water drawn for her by Israelite men, which that didn't happen, and, and then allowed to, 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 to glean amongst the gleaners, among Boaz's people, and, and, uh, and she's an insider, and Boaz offers his protection. And as chapter 2 ends, uh, Naomi kind of tells her, you, you, you stay in those fields um, with, with those women and, and glean. And, and you see the reversal begin to happen as now uh, they have a food source and they're being provided for. It leads us to chapter 3. What's going to happen next? So I want to pick up here chapter 3, verse 1, and read the whole chapter here. And this is page, by the way, page 128 in your Bible. So if you have a Bible off the back there, it's page 128. And um, again, that's an ESV version, which we generally use, but uh, I was 
using just for the sake of the story, the NIV kind of brought that up. So don't be confused, there's some subtle differences. One's not better than the other, just different. So, um, but I'm going to start here in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Hey, pay attention, that's a significant statement. It's been brought out a couple times now in the book. Relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm Ruth, your servant, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she asked, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything Boaz had done for her. And added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty Handed, empty. Word means something? Don't go back to her empty-handed. You've heard it before in the book of Ruth. Verse 18, then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. God, we thank you again for your, your word. We thank you again for this Advent season, the coming of our Redeemer, who came to rescue us in our need, in our poverty, in our sin. So thank you, God. Thank you for the pictures that we see of our redemption here in the book of Ruth. The foreshadowing that Boaz is of a greater redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come from his line. So God, as we interact with the text today, we pray that your spirit would take your truth and impress it on our hearts, that you do whatever work is needed. You know through your spirit, God, uh, what is needed, each and every one of us who's sitting here today, God. So we entrust ourselves to you to teach us, instruct us in whatever we need to hear today. God, I don't have the words to say. This isn't me. I pray that you would take your truth and do your thing with it. 
And as always, we pray this for the glory of Jesus Christ and the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, one of my favorite movies, all right. Princess Bride. Is the same response first. I, I think you, you, most people know this, right? You know The Princess Bride? Most of you have seen it? Okay, good. I see some smiles. All right. Again, some of you may be going, Craig, what, is, what has happened to you? We, we've gone from World War II and Lord of the Rings and football to like the past few weeks. We've been like Anne of Green Gables and Jane Austen and Mr. Darcy. Uh, I, I, don't, I live with three, four women in my house. So I, uh, the Princess Bride. But this is a manly movie. Just, <laughs> it's a manly movie. It's masculine. Right. Stop. One of my favorite characters in the movie here. His name is Inigo Montoya, and if you know the story, right, Inigo is, uh, it, it, he's not the main character, but it traces his story throughout, and his story is this, you see him pointing to that scar on his face, when Inigo was, a, uh, was little, uh, the six-fingered man, bad guy, six-fingered man killed his father, and Inigo was there, watched it happen, and then the six-fingered man, um, uh, ruthless in his, didn't mean that, ruthless. By the way, I guess I said, now I have to say this, what kind of man was Boaz before he got married? Ruthless. Okay, see, I just, um, <laughs> reel it back in here, just going, um, <laughs> the six-figure man was ruthless, but not in the same sense Boaz was, uh, but, and, and, and he shames Inigo, and, and, and uh, um, almost mocks him, and, he, and he, he leaves him with this scar on his face. And walks out, leaves this poor kid there mourning the loss of his dad. Well, later on in the story, right, as the story unfolds, uh, Inigo meets the main character and he tells his story. And he says, ever since that day, I dedicated myself to learning the art of sword fight. And with the, with the idea that one day I will track down the six-fingered man and I will a, a, avenge my, my father's death. And um, listen, I, if you haven't seen the movie, it's like 35 years old, so I don't care if I'm going to ruin it for you. It's, you know, um, but he does end up coming face-to-face again with the six-fingered man, and, and they have this epic sword fight. And the, and the six-fingered man, actually, at the beginning, like most good movies, gets the upper hand, and, and, and he stabs Inigo, and you think, oh, no, Inigo's going to die. And Inigo had told uh, Wesley, the main character, earlier in the movie that his dream is when he met this man, he, he wanted to, to look him in the eye and say to him, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Oh, my word. <laughs> Impressive. Let's learn scripture that well, right? Uh, uh, and he does. He gets stabbed, and you're thinking, oh, no. And, and, and he stands up, and the music's and he's, it's such a dramatic scene. And he looks at the six-figured man, and he says, hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And the guy's like, oh, stop it. And, and he, he gets up, and he starts rallying his strength. And he says it over again, louder. And he says it again and again. And you know, finally, at the end, he's walking down the six-fingered man. He's saying, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. He wants the six-fingered man to know his name and who he is as he avenges his father's death. No longer the shamed, helpless little boy now, right, the sword fighter, the courageous one who's avenging his father's death. We're going to get there in a minute, but I want to suggest to you the structure of this chapter 
it is pointing to one key moment. And I believe the key moment of this entire chapter is the moment when Boaz asks, who are you? And Ruth says, I am Ruth, your servant. And I believe the whole flow of the chapter goes to that moment. And it's the most significant point here in this context, in this, in this chapter. I am Ruth. We're going to set that aside just for a minute. We're going to track through how we get there and then unpack the significance of that statement, okay? So how does it unfold? Well, here's the big idea. We can boldly embrace our new identity standing in Christ because of who he is as our redeemer, right? We can boldly embrace our new identity and standing in Christ because of who he is as our redeemer. That's the big idea. All right. Let's track through the story here. Chapter 1, verses three, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Naomi devises a plan to secure rest for Ruth. And we've got to be honest here. I'm not 100% sure that Naomi's intent here was as great as we often say it is. Right? Go in the dark, make yourself look good, and lay at his feet and do whatever he tells you. All right? I think you could suggest a little bit that Naomi was being a little bit suggestive. Hoping in one way, shape, or form that that marriage was going to consummate that night. Okay? Again, can't read totally into her motives, but it, it does seem a little shady. Okay? Um, so Naomi was after something noble here. I'm just not sure she went about it the best way. And if nothing else, this is a terrible plan. I, in a lot of ways, if you think about it, right? I mean, think about the risk. Like, go out... In the middle of the night, go to the threshing floor, which was an activity of a lot of bad things during that time of the harvest. Go to the threshing floor. I mean, she's taking all kinds of risk in, in this, all right? So in, in a lot of ways, I'm not even sure this is the greatest plan. She's putting Ruth in a terrible situation. She really is. That said, her motives, at least, I think, are good. Uh, she's seeking a place where Ruth will be provided for. She's seeking a permanent home. She's a resting place. She's seeking security. Naomi reminds Ruth who Boaz is, right? This is our relative. And, uh, and she reminds Ruth of this is the guy, you know, that, who allowed you to glean in his fields. It was his women who, who you, you followed along. So she's reminding Ruth who Boaz is. So she tells him, go meet him at the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor was usually outside of the city, usually in a place where there was some sort of prevailing wind so that they could toss up, you know, the, the harvest and it would blow away the chaff and the, and the heavier part that, that was worth keeping would come to the ground. So it was, was kind of out away from the city a bit. Um, and um, Boaz is probably there, and Naomi would know this, uh, with, with the other men. They, they would spend the night there, uh, to usually to, to, to lay and protect their harvest from, from thieves, okay? Um, so she knows she's going to be there, and this is where she tells Ruth to go. And she says to her, make yourself attractive, so again, you're like, eh, what's Naomi after here? What's she telling her to do? Uh, she, no, she could be some suggest, is she telling her to, to put on bridal attire? Something that would signify a, a bride, you know, bridal dress, maybe. Put on your best clothes. So some commentators suggest that she's telling her to transition um, from uh, this period of mourning into uh, a period of, uh, I'm available now. You know, get, get out of your morning clothes. Some commentators suggest that. Is it more than that? Whatever the case, we can probably summarize it by saying she's likely presenting herself as a potential bride 
to impress Boaz. And then she says, no, don't, don't let him know that you're there until after he's finished eating and drinking for the evening. Now, here's some questions, right? As you read the text, I, I have some questions, right? Why, why here and why in secret? Well, again, Naomi's motives weren't 100% pure in this. That explains it, right? Uh, why did they need a secluded spot for the conversation? Was there any sort of custom involved in this? Was it to avoid raising questions about her dress? Um, was, was she wanting, you know, for Ruth to make this statement to Boaz about her intent, but she couldn't be obvious about it due to the questions it would raise and perhaps how it would be perceived, maybe being perceived even as undermining the, the closer relative? We can't say with certainty, right? And it's significant to note here, like with a lot of scripture, there, there are aspects of culture and things that are lost on us two, over 2,000 years later, right? And we understand this, even in the world that we live in, as small as it is, right? There's still cultural things that we, we don't always get. And, and so when you're talking about culture 2,000 years ago, um, a different culture, there's just things that we can't answer, right? So there are aspects of this that I, it's, I, I don't know every detail. The author doesn't fill in every detail for us, and that's okay. The big idea still comes across. So this is, goes on, and she tells him to, tells her, lie down at his feet and uncover his feet. Uh, the little translation is, uncover the place of his feet. So again, some suggest that this is a little more scandalous, as this Hebrew word here can have multiple meanings. We have to be honest about that. This, this word for feet here can have multiple meanings. Referring to, to male genitalia, it could be referring to that. It could just simply mean the feet. The only other place that this word appears in this exact form, this exact form, is in the book of Daniel where it's talking about the statue that Nebuchadnezzar would build, and it talks about the, the legs of the statue, and it's the same word, and it was referring to, the, you know, from here down. So it could just be that uncover that part of his leg. The place of the feet, uh, Daniel Block, uh, one of the really great commentators on the book of Ruth, says the, the word, the terminology place of his feet seems to draw attention away from the euphemism um, and uh, render the sexual interpretation unlikely, right? Um, and uh, it goes on to say that this plus the noble character of these individuals and the fact that Boaz especially is concerned to do everything by the book in chapters three through four, um, it would lead us to believe that, that um, there's nothing more uh, than what's in the plain reading of the text is what went on here. Okay? Regardless of Naomi's intent, what ended, ended up unfolding it was nothing sexual um, beyond the, 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 the plain reading of the text. Um, and nothing else, what was, what was being um, sought after here is that Boaz would, uh, would feel the cold as the, the temperature went down there in the desert after he fell asleep and at some point would wake up. And that that's what uh, the ultimate goal was here. Um, whatever the case, Ruth is taking a great risk here, right? And not the greatest plan. <laughs> uh, Boaz could have taken advantage of Ruth. If Ruth is seen by someone else, she could be perceived as acting like a prostitute. Uh, Boaz could have misinterpreted her intentions. Uh, there's tension here. Will this plan work? Will it work? Well, let's see. It goes on. Ruth carries out the plan. She makes a bold and risky proposal. In verse 6, we see that Ruth does, in fact, go to the threshing floor, and she does everything that Naomi had told her to do. Boaz uh, finishes his work. He finishes eating and drinking, and it tells us here in the text that he's in good spirits, right? You've been there. Right? You ever have a day where you get a lot done? It's a really good day. You accomplish a lot. Maybe that night you have something social and, and uh, maybe with friends and a, and a gathering, and, and you enjoy that and that time together, and you lay down at night, and you're like, man, it was a good day. Good day. I feel good about today. 
That's kind of what Naomi is after here. Like, get him when he's feeling good, right? We, we, we understand this, right? Kids at Christmas time, right? I mean, you, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to wait till mom and dad are in a good mood before I ask for the puppy for Christmas, uh, right? It's like, you know, like, oh, no, no, not a good mood. Right? We do this with our spouses, like, I know, like eh, I'm not going to ask Kathy about this right now. Uh, you know, or vice versa, right? We, we, we do this. We play this game, right? I, I want, you know, when you're after something, you want the person you're asking to be in a really good mood. And that's, that's, what, that's what they wanted here. They wanted Boaz to be in a, in a good mood, feeling good about life, right? Life is good. And so Ruth does everything she was told. She approaches. She does lie down. I can't imagine what this was like for her. Imagine that long wait. I, mean, I guarantee you she didn't sleep. Like, how is Boaz going to respond? Like, what's going to happen here? It's like a kid on Christmas Eve. Right? I remember being you know, on Christmas Eve. I, I couldn't sleep. Right? Why? Anticipation. Like, am I, am I going to get my Transformers that I asked for? My G.I. Joes? Um you know, for Christmas, and then, and then you remember, like, oh, yeah, wait a minute, mom and dad said if I didn't go to sleep, I wouldn't get my presents, right, so then you're, then you're nervous, because I'm not going to sleep, and I'm not going to get my presents, and the whole thing just snowballs, and I can't, so I imagine Ruth was kind of in that kind of state right here, like, just a nervous wreck, like, what's going to happen, and uh, she's laying there, waiting, Boaz was obviously asleep, because in verse 8, the middle of the night, uh, Boaz startles awake, the word tremble, it could simply mean shivered, Boaz shivered, um, which would make sense if he was partly uncovered. It would be cold, right? It could have been an awareness uh, that just someone was there. You ever have this, like, as a parent, right? Your, your kid ever come to your room in the middle of the night, and they just stand there, and, and you're kind of like, all of a sudden, you're kind of aware. You're like, wait a minute, like someone's here, right? We have that. I mean, our little guy does that come in, and Kathy and I usually respond very differently to that. We generally wake up around the same time, but uh, the neighbors normally know that someone has been in our room because of Kathy's response. Uh, uh, <laughs> and then I'm very much awake. And, uh, but right, but you, yeah, you have that awareness, like, wait, so, something's here. And then you look, and there's the shadow, and you're like, <laughs> and, uh, hi, Mommy, I just wanted to come say hi. Like, Go to bed, man. <laughs> like, what's your problem? Yeah. Um, but uh, something startled him awake. And in the grog, he sees this, this form, and uh, whatever grogginess was there, all of a sudden he's fully awake. It's a girl. <laughs> like, wait a minute. He recognized the fact that it's a woman. He doesn't necessarily know who it is. Who, who are you? Who are you? As I suggested at the beginning, I think that this question right here is the point of emphasis in this chapter. I believe the structure of this passage points to this moment right here. This is the underlying question of the entire book of Ruth, really. It's even bound up in the purpose of the book of Ruth as a transition between the time of the judges and the time of the monarchy. Who is this woman? Who is this Moabite in the line of David? And in verse 9, she gives her answer, and the literal way it reads in Hebrew is she says, I am Ruth, your servant. A shift has occurred. She is no longer Ruth the Moabite, or Ruth the widow, or Ruth the unworthy, or Ruth the lower class servant. The term she used in chapter 2, verse 13, the sifata. It's a lower class servant. That's not the terminology she used. She uses this terminology of handmaid, ama, and she uses it twice in verse 9. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread the corner of your garment over your servant. Two times, she changes what she calls herself. I am Ruth, your servant. 
No longer those other things. It's the same terminology. Cover me with the corner of your garment. It's interesting. Ruth goes off script here. Right? Naomi said, go lay down at his feet and wait for him to tell you what to do. Ruth does everything Naomi said up to that point. And when he asks who she is, she tells him, and then she tells Boaz what he will do. Some shootspah here, right? I think that's how you pronounce it. There's a little fire in Ruth. This is what you will do. Spread the corner of your garment over me, right? It's a marriage proposal. It's the same terminology that the prophet Ezekiel uses, that God uses when talking about his marriage, his relationship with Israel. God says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Ruth's making a marriage proposal here. I love this too because this is the same imagery of covering me, This is the same imagery that Boaz had used in chapter 2, verse 12. Where he says, may God, you know, may you find refuge uh, in the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You know what Ruth's doing here? Ruth is challenging Boaz to be the answer to his own blessing. Beal, commentator, writes this. Ruth is pushing Boaz past his moral and theological Platitudes. Ruth is saying, you be the cover of Yahweh over me. Again, she's going way off script here. <laughs> she's telling Boaz what to do. This is a Moabite proposing to an Israelite, a woman proposing to a man, a younger person proposing to an older person, the destitute field worker proposing to a wealthy, well-respected landowner. On what basis does Ruth make such a bold request well, one, she's embracing her new identity. But two, first and foremost, she answers this question for us in verse 9. On what basis does she make this bold request? <laughs> because you are my kinsman redeemer. She makes the bold request, not based on her past or anything, based on who Boaz is in reality. That's why she's emboldened. This is who you are, Boaz. Marry me because of who You are the protector of our family rights. We've used this terminology, kinsman redeemer, goel in Hebrew. We've used it throughout the book. What it means is is basically that. It's a good working definition, the protector of family rights. I wish we had time to unpack this throughout the Old Testament, but let me just give you a brief summary of of what her understanding of this is and what Boaz's understanding of it is. Leviticus 25, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor, and sell some of their property, their nearest relative, the kinsman redeemer, the goel, is to come and redeem what they have sold. Would help someone who lost property, right? Some of their family member who lost property. Leviticus 25, if a foreigner residing among you becomes rich, and any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells themselves to the foreigner, or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. One of their relatives, the kinsman redeemer, the goel, may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. Or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. 
Numbers 35, 19, the avenger of blood. This is referring to the Goel. The kinsman redeemer shall put the murderer to death. The Goel was allowed. If someone killed someone out of anger or rage, the Goel was allowed by the law to avenge that death. Numbers 35. Deuteronomy 19 speaks the same thing. But if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults, and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities... The killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger, the Goel, to die. The kinsman redeemer was a protector and a redeemer. Ruth boldly makes her request based on the reality of who Boaz was. And you cannot escape here the connection between Boaz and Christ and our salvation. I can come to Jesus and boldly ask for grace and salvation, not based on who I am or my past or anything else, solely based on who Jesus Christ is and who he has declared himself to be as the Redeemer. That is the basis of my boldness. That's why I come and say, God, this is who I am. And God doesn't look at what I've done, who I am in the past, any of that. He fulfills that demand on my part because he has declared himself the Redeemer. And he has told me in his word that whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Doesn't care that I was an outsider. Doesn't care that I was in poverty. Doesn't care that I was broken, that I was an addict, that I was in sin. He redeems me solely based on the reality of who he is. And that's why Ruth goes and demands this, because she understands, you are my redeemer. Fulfill your role to me. A beautiful picture of the gospel and the confidence we can have. Of course, Boaz responds gracefully with a promise and provision. Boaz blesses her and once again affectionately addresses her as my daughter. Blesses her and addresses her as my daughter. By the way, I would suggest to you if this had been a sexual encounter, that's probably not the way he's going to talk to her. Right? My daughter. And he blesses her in the name of God. And in verse 10, he says to her, this kindness is greater than the first. At first I thought, oh, he, he's saying this because she's asking to marry this, this old man. By the way, he, probably, he, was, he was older, but dude was still a pretty strong man. I mean, he's still very, very full of life and strength, right? But I, I used to think that's, what, that's why he's saying, right, now you're being really kind because you, 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 you want to give me a chance, right? I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. She, Boaz says, you, you didn't go after the younger guy? You didn't go after poorer or richer? What he's saying here is she she wasn't motivated by passion or greed. She has other values. Ruth is motivated by a desire to provide an heir for Naomi and her late husband. This is selfless concern on Ruth's part. And this is why I say this. Her reference to the Goel implied her concern for her clan of Israelite in-laws. This is why she didn't go after the others. She wasn't in this for herself. And this is why Boaz lauds her hesed. Boaz understands she's valuing something bigger than herself. This kindness, her first kindness was coming here with, with, with Naomi. Her second kindness is even greater because now she's giving her life. This, the whole thing behind this for her isn't just her marriage. It's, it's to care for her family and her family line. And then he goes on to praise her. All the people of my town know that you are a woman. Or I'm sorry, I missed one. 
Um, he says to her in response, don't be afraid. I'll do all that you ask. Don't be afraid. I'll do all that you ask. It's a great statement of assurance, right? But Ruth, Ruth had a lot to be afraid of. Afraid of her future. Afraid of provision. And in the immediate context, afraid of how is Boaz going to respond? Is he going to kick me out? Is he going to be like, you have no right to ask me to do this? A lot of fear. And Boaz says, don't be afraid, Ruth. Again, what a picture of God and his grace, right? All over scripture. This is Isaiah 41. For I, the Lord, your God, holds your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Look at this statement. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You're like, well, that sounds condescending. No, it's just the reality. Israel, Jacob, humanity. Like, compared to God, we're worms. We're helpless. We're, we're in the dirt. We're, we're worthy of nothing. This is the beautiful statement. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. God loves worms. Right? Tyler's like, yes, yeah, so do I. Um, fear not, you worm, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Boaz will serve her and reverse her situation. Once again, sound familiar? The New Testament Redeemer, the Redeemer, serves us and reverses our situation. He goes on to praise her. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Verse 11. The literal translation is all the gates of my people. The gate referred to all the citizens who gather at the gate, including mainly the leaders and the elders. I think Boaz is what he's communicating here is that Ruth at some point had been talked about amongst the leaders in the gate of the city and officially been declared a noble woman. She's one of us. Why is that significant, right? No one's going to object, object to the Moabites anymore. The, the Hebrew mind, the Hebrew thought, closely, closely, closely connected the story of Ruth with Proverbs 31. You know how Proverbs 31 ends? 31, 31? She's praised where? In the gates. It's an intentional, a connection, right? There's no greater compliment a woman could be paid in the Old Testament than this terminology of noble the proverbs 31 woman praised in the gates what's being portrayed here is that boaz and ruth the moabitess not really anymore are both noble worthy of one another but wait a minute the love story was going really well right there's a little hitch thrown in here like any good hallmark movie right there's always a hitch at about the hour and 43 minute mark it's resolved in three minutes generally but here it's not the flies need to be resolved there's a hitch a complication thrown into the story there's another relative more closely related wait a minute now this plan all of a sudden isn't unfolding exactly the way it was supposed to <laughs> I think these wrinkles are good though the wrinkle is good in this story. It's good in our stories because what the wrinkles ensure is that God's plans, not ours, are ultimately behind everything, right? This now all of a sudden is out of Boaz's, Naomi, and Ruth's control. God's going to have to be the one to resolve this now. Only God can overcome all the obstacles. There was human scheming, maybe not even the most noble of scheming on Naomi's part. There's human scheming and planning. The wrinkle here removes all doubt that God ultimately had to be the one who acted. Human plans were not going to be enough, right? 
I think this also raises a point about Boaz's integrity. Boaz would not circumvent the law or the customs. It's fitting for an ancestor of David, right? He says to her, lodge here for the nights. Going out in the, this is protection he's offering. Going out in the middle of the night would have been dangerous. There was drunkards celebrating the harvest. There were thieves. Stay here. And, and the terminology he uses here is lodge. Lodge here for the night. It's a non-sexual term. It's the same word that Ruth used in Ruth chapter 1, when she told Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Stay here. Be protected here. No sexual connotations. And Boaz says there, if in the morning the other redeemer takes care of it, fine. If not, I will. You continue to see Boaz's character here, and that he's willing to let her go if the nearest kinsman is willing to take her and redeem her. Boaz is more concerned, most concerned, with her being taken care of. Even though I'm guessing that he and Ruth probably were both hoping this would work out, right? I think that's okay. I think that's fair to read that into it. Probably all of us, anyone reading the story, right? We're on Team Boaz. It's like years ago when Calls the Heart, when it was, here I go again. What's with all the female movie references? I'll get back to World War II and Dallas Cowboys and stuff next week, all right? But, uh, but I remember, like, in our, in our house, right, it was like, I don't even remember the guy's names. But you're not helping me. Anyways, right, you're on team one guy. And t- Nathan, was that one of them? I got one of them. Team Nathan and team other guy, right? And, and like, who's she going to marry? And they played this out for, like, 14 seasons, right? So you keep coming back and watching it. Like, who's she going to marry? I'm, we're on team so-and-so. Right, we're all on team Boaz here. But... There's this other guy in the way. But Boaz offers this oath to love. It indicates his firm resolve to marry her if the other redeemer declines. What Boaz is communicating, Ruth, this will be taken care of. One way or the other, you will be cared for her long ordeal. And all the pain and suffering with it is about to be over. There's no formal engagement here. Again, I'm not sure again what Naomi was trying to get to happen here. But nothing happened. No formal engagement. Boaz will let this play out the right way as a righteous man would. Boaz will let this play out the right way as a righteous man would. Again, I couldn't help but see the connection with Jesus Christ here. Jesus would also not shortcut the process, the temptation. Jesus, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Let everyone worship you that way. Jesus would not take shortcuts. Jesus knew that he had to fulfill the law in order to be our redeemer. Boaz is playing the same game here. He is going to let this play out the right way so that he could be the legitimate redeemer. And he tells Ruth, go back to sleep. Rest easy. Your issue will be resolved. I love that. Go to sleep, Ruth. Ruth, go to sleep. Rest. You will be redeemed. I thought of these passages. I thought, of, if you were here for Pipe Prayer and Praise, remember Ann Hendrickson's story? And she's a missionary. Um, and, and she talked about the communists coming in, and she's standing there, and they, they hit a munitions dump right down the road from her, and her husband, Dan, was gone in the, in the, to some villages preaching, and it's the middle of the night, and she just said, well, I just took my baby and, and put her down and went to sleep. And she cited this verse, confidence in God and peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Rest, Ruth, rest. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me all who labor, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says to the prostitute, the sinful woman in Luke 7, after she comes and washes his feet and has this heart of humble obedience and, 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 and um, repentance, Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We can rest in who our Redeemer is. You don't have to doubt, have I done enough? Have I done too much? Is God going to stop loving me? Is he going to quit on me? Is he going to accept me? Rest in who your Redeemer is. This is the promise. Rest. Rest, Ruth. She gets up and goes before she could be recognized in verse 14. Boaz provides for her again. He gives her more barley to take back to Naomi. Estimated somewhere in the, the, the 60 to 95 pounds. By the way, Ruth must have been pretty, pretty ripped, man. She's carrying barley all over the place, right? Boaz provides again. Here's the thing. We talked about this last week. Boaz was not legally bound to do any of this because technically Naomi and Ruth didn't meet the qualifications of a leveret marriage. Right? That was reserved for very specific, you know, brother and brother. But as we saw in those passages... There was an expectation for kinsmen redeemers, clan members, to care for each other, to care for the clan. And remember, Boaz wasn't even the nearest clansman or kinsman. He didn't have to do any of this, but Boaz applies the spirit of the law and continues to go over and above for the sake of this remnant of his kinsman's family. Again, it's Jesus. Goes over and above the law, fulfills it, and then some so that he can redeem her. Didn't do just enough. Boaz doesn't do just enough, right? This is like when you tell your kids to wash the dishes. I know, this doesn't happen in my home, but you know what? And they, 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 they wash the dishes, but then you're like, dude, I just gave away. Dude, kid, um, yeah. <laughs> I do it too. So, right? Like, you're like, wash the, like, oh, can you wipe down the counter around it? I mean, here's the spaghetti side. I know you got it off the plate, but it's still on the, yeah, you know, like, and we all do that, right? Do the bare minimum. Boaz doesn't do the bare minimum here. That's above and beyond. Naomi expresses confidence in the redemptive work of Boaz. And that's the worship team to come back up. We're going to close with a song of hope. But let me make a couple points here as we close. Ruth comes back into view. And you see here in verse 16, how did it go, my daughter? In the Hebrew, all that's there is the word daughter. In the syntax of it, the grammar, it's a question. Daughter? With a question mark. You know what that is? You know what Naomi is asking Ruth? Daughter? With a question mark? Daughter? Who are you? Who are you? Comes up again. Are you still Ruth? Are you betrothed? Are you this? Who are you? What's your status? Ruth tells her everything that just happened. No, something's changed. We're going to be taken care of. Who am I? I'm Ruth. The redeemed. And she points to this grain, this barley. She said, he sent me home with this. He said, I couldn't come back to Naomi empty-handed. Where have we read the word empty already in Ruth chapter 1? Naomi, I'm empty. Reversal. You're no longer empty, Naomi. Here, the grain 
is telling us that the emptiness of hunger is resolved. And what's coming in chapter 4 is that the rest of the emptiness is going to be resolved. The protection, the barrenness, there's going to be a child. Absolute confidence. Sit down and wait, Ruth. The man will not rest until this is accomplished. You know why I can rest? Because Jesus Christ will not rest until it's finished. That's why I can rest. Confidence in who he is. There's some application points there which we don't have time to get to. If you want the blanks, there they are really fast. Rest, confidence. I am Ruth because of who my Redeemer is. Find who you are in Jesus.